In this Your Truth Shared special, we listen back to a compilation of some of the amazing stories and insights shared by some of our wonderful guests. It was difficult to select just 10 moments, but this collection is a mix of advice, techniques, and real life stories that hopefully will provide inspiration for you to build your own success story in the coming year. I hope you enjoy. Let's talk about the adult and the adult entrepreneur that you serve and that that is listening here mm. uh, to this podcast. And I'm mm-hmm. is there a trick or a way of because when, when you talk about unlocking confidence and speaking confidence and I and I really like this idea that you give structure and stuff in that process. But is there something that we could bring our awareness to even before we come to you to realize that it's an old pattern or have you any thoughts on that? I think what what has been said to me, the word game changer has been used by two individuals in the past two weeks to me when I've said to them about switching the focus from yourself to the listener, to the audience. Because our biggest fear when we're standing up to speak, we're afraid that people are looking at us and they're judging us. They're judging us because we're speaking too fast or we're speaking too slow or we're using ums and as. They're judging us because we feel they're judging us because we're not given enough interesting content. What I have to say is boring. The number of people who say to me, why would anybody want to listen to me? It's boring what I do. So it's that, what the, the images that we have of ourselves, we're thinking that others are going to be viewing us in that way. So when I take the focus off myself and think, who's going to be listening to this? How am I going to make it worth their while to listen to me? And how can I add value with what I'm saying? Now I'm switching my focus. It's not about me anymore. It's about the person that I am speaking to. And helping. Yeah. You know, so if it's at, we say a networking event and someone is delivering their pitch at a networking event and you're saying, look, at how can you help them to better understand what your business is? Then you're taking the focus off yourself and you're talking about how you've helped your clients, how you can help them or people that they know. If they're delivering, a, you know, a longer presentation, it's the same thing. You're thinking how, what information can you give to these people today to make it worth their while listening to you? Yeah. And when that is switched, that focus, that helps. That's the the starting point for it. And everything that I do is always, it always starts with the audience. You know, who are they already? What do you know about them? What, what did they, what information do they have? What do you want to share? How do you bridge that gap between the two in a way that is going to be simple for them to understand and easy for them to remember afterwards? And it's a, that's, I mean, that's a fundamental marketing perspective anyway, thinking about the customer, Mm. but it's kind of really nice to hear you say it in this context, because sometimes we switch our brains off when we're thinking about in new uh, scenarios. So you saying switch the focus to the person listening, how can you serve them? How can you help them? I mean, that's marketing 101, Mm. you know, really, but we, we can fall into a trap of forgetting that because of our own stuff. Yeah, we, we we box it into, you know, we, we box it that that's what I do in marketing. Oh, is that what I do in speaking as well? Or for me, the, the flip side of it, you know, that's yeah. what I'm teaching my clients. Oh, that's the exact same that I should be doing in my marketing, you know. So it's opening things up and, and thinking about it broader and how, yeah. how it applies. I, I do a lot of work with uh, integrating 
marketing thinking into HR positions, uh, into the HR function in companies. And there's an interesting kind of dialogue around, you know, hiring a certain type that's aligned with the company so that you have these three things which are positive disposition, the ownership, no excuse making and um, can handle change. And like, that's wonderful, that clarity that you have around that. But here's just a question in terms of in this time that we have about diversity and inclusion. Is there a danger of being that focused, which is powerful? And and it's not it's this is not rhetorical. I'm actually genuinely asking this question. Is there a danger that it's skewed too much in one direction? Is there a possibility that uh, you are leaving something out, which is you know, challenging the possibility of being challenged by a different viewpoint? It's a fantastic question. So in terms of diversity, I think that's critically important. And we had all types of people in in uh, in in that watch. And I think what's fundamentally important, I wasn't trying to surround myself with yes people. And mm. that's right. So there's, there's another big, long story, story in this, uh, Finola, in terms of how we could describe the culture that we developed in, in that watch yeah. underneath this piece, right? So again, very, very simply, I, I was never, I'm still to this day, I'm not a fan of values being put on a wall because the first three, and pardon yeah. my French, are the usual bullshit. Honestly, integrity, <laughs> trustworthiness. Uh, and and I, 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 I've, Love it. I've sat in reception areas looking up at these values on the wall and known in my heart and soul that, that the person that I was going to be dealing with did not live these values. So we, we, we came up with a situation, uh, said in Netwatch, right, we're going to do a deep dive into our culture. And instead of talking about values, we're going to talk about behaviours. Because people, mm. everybody can see what a behaviour is. Like my 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 view of honesty and yours could be different, depending on different circumstances. You know, and I often use the example of Oliver, the musical, when I was young watching that. And we all know that stealing is dishonest and wrong. But if you haven't eaten for five days and you can get an apple off a stand for free of charge and make a run for it, you, you, yeah, can, yeah. you can justify that in your mind in that piece. Yeah. So whereas behaviours are different. Behaviours are solid. They're rock solid. There's, there's, there's no, if somebody's late in the morning, that's a behaviour in the story. There's no ifs and buts. So we decided to go through a process in that watch where we would decide on the behaviours in that watch. Two things that we always did and two things that were completely unacceptable. So the two things that we always did as an organization, uh, we always put the customer first and we always worked as a team. They were the two things, the positive behaviors, and they were the things that got you rewarded, uh, promoted and recognized in the organization. And they're the two things that we never do. We never uh, disrespect another person, whether that's an employee, a manager, a manager to an employee, a uh, an employee to an outside to a customer or to a supplier and they talk about we, we spoke earlier on about strategic alignment once we'd made that decision then we meant it for everything and to your point there specifically that the second thing that we never do we never hide uh, we all have opinions we all make mistakes it's important that we own up to those mistakes and drive on and one of the things i remember speaking to a senior manager one day when she, when she was starting on my center particularly on this piece about we don't hide and I said hide means different things to people in terms of their own jobs and whatever but I said at the senior management table if I'm very strong about a particular direction I want the company to go and you feel completely that we should be going a different direction and you don't speak because I'm strong character well then you're hiding you're no use to me you know you have to challenge you have to challenge things at a strategic level to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the company and and, and that stood us good stead over the way we, that culture uh 
the, the model of the, the behaviours became known as the Netwatch way. It seems that I'm having this conversation more and more. I've had touched on this conversation as well. And in previous converse, in previous episodes of Your Truth Shared, we had one episode with Brendan O'Hara from Untapped. And he talked about change in organizations that 70% of all change fails. And it wouldn't fail if people knew themselves, like you're saying. And now there seems to be this uh, movement of the stars or whatever you want to say that we're actually realizing, oh, don't have to separate work and life, separating work and life, same as you're separating the heart and the lungs and the, if we don't connect everything, then uh, we're hurting ourselves. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you kind of parachute it down from space right now to the earth, would you choose to run the earth the way the earth is run. Do you know what I mean? We're polluting our uh, our planet and ourselves. Our food doesn't have the nutrition in it. In fact, you know, you need an engineering degree to work out what's in half the stuff. And that's allowed, by the way, by governments. We are normalizing stress. We have economies at the center of um of our governmental policies, you know, less about family, you know, there's more about division than unity very often. And, you know, I'll often say to my clients, if you hear yourself saying the word should run very quickly in the opposite direction. I think, I honestly think we're all, and it's no judgment at all, by the way, because I just think we're socialized and programmed to value this sense of busy. And when I mean busy, I mean over busy. When you're like that, you're just responding to whoever is shouting the loudest at you. You're not actually really thinking or really coming at life from an authentic space. I've written the first draft of a book called How to Live from the Inside Out. And it's mm. it's based on um, my own experience, but hugely on my professional experience of key themes that I see time and time again in the community and in organizations and people are just responding to whoever's shouting the loudest at them and a lot of people are living life in a very unhappy and not fulfilled way and I personally believe happiness is our birthright and I think it doesn't have to all be so serious and we don't have to collapse into bed exhausted only to wake up again at two o'clock in the morning because he reminds us of all the things you have to do and you know and so many people do this that it's as we were saying at the top of the of the session it's it's normalized um and that's unhealthy i really think and a lot of the work that i do is encouraging people to think and solve problems and live from the inside out because i think if you're connected to yourself and you're connected to your reality and your truth and really you're not going to hurt yourself intentionally but because we're living unintentionally I think we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting in the organizations and we're hurting you know in the planet and and it's it's sad when you see you know I was talking to my husband about this this morning you know we have all these medicine that's elongating our lifespan and I know there's so many women who are perimenopausal from a much earlier age, because in evolutionary terms, this is just one example, you know, we should be dead by now. So now all of a sudden we need medicine to, to, to normalize and feel, feel happy again and healthy again. 
And that's just, you know, you have statins and you have all sorts of other medicines that 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 kind of elongate life. But it's A, it's elongating life, but not necessarily quality of life in many cases. And B, now I'm seeing stats around people born um, in the last 20 or 30 years are more likely to get cancer before the age of 50. Have you seen that? So Why? Because of the pollution and because of the food and because of the stresses and whatever else and the me- and the medicines, like all the medicines that people are taking and it's into the into the water system and and it's not <laughs> I sound very doomsdaying and I don't mean to be. I, I what I just think is like we need to I really believe passionately that when you wake up to I don't have to do everything. I get to be happy. I get to have a pause. I get to connect with loved ones. I get to choose that I don't need to buy every single thing that's in the fast fashion bin. You know, I get to I get to make informed choices. It's it, it's actually quite simple to live in a way that's a lot more authentic and fulfilling and useful. Um but it's just it, it's just a question of seeing it, I think, of seeing the fallacy. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. There seems to be a really strong theme here, which is it's very conscious and organic. The process of how these businesses emerge seem to be this ability to to see the problem and convert it into an opportunity every time. I, I think that's that's a great way to describe it, Finola, and a way to describe it that I, I didn't know of until two weeks ago when I was preparing a small talk for the TY class in Waterpark that I gave earlier this week. And I came across a small little video and it said that really all entrepreneurship or all new business development is about thinking about the things that annoy you every day or annoy other people and seeing if there are solutions for those and seeing if there are innovative solutions for those. And it can be as simple as a better paperclip or as big as dealing with global warming or anywhere in between. But it was focused on that idea of the things that that get you, the things that don't seem to work right. Um, the things that, you know, the the audio platform you're using is a solution for people who wanted to make podcasts. It didn't exist probably 10 years ago. And it's designed to specifically address a number of the challenges people had when they were using other platforms or other solutions for podcasting that, that were not, not satisfactory or not good enough. Um, and I thought it was a brilliant way of describing it because that was the journey we organically, as you said, went along to set up these other businesses. They were dealing with challenges and opportunities we faced. Carbon Ventures was dealing with a challenge we had where we had land, which was, um, it had, it had, been deforested it was suffering from soil erosion um and it was it was it was land that we were under threat that the government would take it away from us because they were arguing that we weren't using it while we were at the same time arguing that we couldn't use it because it wasn't suitable for growing crops and so this carbon ventures is a solution to that problem it's a way of utilizing marginal land in a community friendly way that provides sustainable jobs and improve livelihoods in that area delivers a return to us delivers carbon credits to our customer and create you know creates a a fantastic cycle of opportunity from land that is 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 currently deteriorating further it's washing away it's blowing away because there's there's no nothing growing on it and that can turn back into some fantastic virgin local savannah forest um in 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 the space of 10 years and and to me that's 
you know, that's that organic growth. But it comes also from a second element. So the first thing is being open to and listening listening to ideas and, 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 and you know, encouraging the development of ideas. But secondly, it's about collaboration. And I think you, you know all about that. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of collaboration. And for us, mm-hmm. collaboration is, is, is all about not going into something wondering what you can get out of it, but going into something wondering what you can put into it. And so every conversation I have, whether it's in, in an airport or in a bar or in a coffee shop or on a podcast, which is my first, I'm looking to see are there snippets of things that we can do together and that I can help you on or maybe that you can help me on. But, but we try and give more than get. We, you know, we're quite happy to have the get down the line and to give up front and to trust people. So you go in very open, you, you know, you first of all, tell about your own problems and challenges, you go in very open for, for free collaboration. So you're not in immediately sending an invoice or trying to get a chargeable hour. You know, the belief is there that that will come if it's supposed to come, or you will get rewards through connections, goodwill, maybe a bit of work in the future, you know, whatever it is, maybe just a good conversation that stimulates the solving of a problem in your own head in the shower the next day but that idea of collaboration. So you have two uh, domains. I'd love them both. <laughs> One is, <laughs> is it helpful.com? Like so powerful. It's so powerful. And that comes from your word smithery. And the other one, which is what you do and, and this mission of yours, which is firstaidforfeelings.com. <laughs> I love it. So I think for me, is it helpful? It's been, again, this is all because I needed it. So I remember, you know, trying to figure out how to help myself. There was a lot of, there was a lot of do's and don'ts. But, you know, positive psychology was like, if you just think about it, you'll get better. <laughs> or, you know, just trust the medical model. Don't do anything complimentary, you know. And I've found myself caught up in the right and wrong, good and bad kind yeah. of mentality. And then I realized it's just not helpful. So when I got simplified it really down to the most basic question I could imagine in terms of how I'm feeling doing X, Y, and Z, is it helpful? And I could then go yes or no. I didn't mm. have to think about the kind of rational, uh, the bigger picture or read the research. Just does my body tell me <laughs> this is helpful or not? Or does my mind and my heart, my emotions, do they tell me this belief, this behavior, this supplement, this medication, is it helpful? So take a moment, take a moment here, because this is really powerful to understand that we are not just this thinking mind that's looking for all the data. It's that we have all of these systems. Well, if I'm reading this correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong, that we have all of these systems that can actually talk to each other and we just can ask them, you know, and sit with it. And the answer comes because our body knows our soul knows, our heart knows, our mind knows, is it helpful? So we don't have to have this constant thing of I either go to the doctor or I go to complementary therapy or I do this or I do that. It's actually a synergy. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned when we spoke that you didn't you didn't fall in these neat boxes that we like to make around mental health, physical health, you know, spiritual health or any of these things. And and talk to us about that, because that was a journey in itself to get to where you are. Absolutely. So one of the uh, so there's sort of 
biggest con- or two contributory factors to me falling ill, that kind of vulnerability that when I got that viral infection, those two viral infections, and, and because also they went further into my system, if you like, than normally they would, um, were my predisposing factors and I had complex PTSD. So uh, there was a, a, a number or a cluster of traumas in my history. And we know from research that people who have had traumas, particularly in childhood, they are more vulnerable to health issues. It's something called ACEs or an ACE, oh. which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Wow. And the more ACEs you have, the more vulnerable you are to health issues, even as, a, as early as teen, but also in adulthood. So I had a few ACEs that made me vulnerable on top of the genetic predisposition that I had. But also one of the kind of not obviously traumatic aspects, but clearly it was, is the fact that I'm transgender and non-binary. Okay, tell us more about that, because in our conversation, I shared with you that you are the first transgender person I met. So I really wanted to. And and this is really interesting from an identity perspective as well. Yeah. And I had you um, I asked you to explain how I speak to you to explain what it means so that I could understand if you could take a moment to share that, because I really believe that when we share more about all of these things that are emerging in the ether for us to understand more, the better it is. Is that okay? Absolutely. So I'll I'll come in from two different perspectives. One is in terms of not being able to be either mental health or physical health practitioner, not yeah. being able to bring myself to full recovery by only focusing on our mental health or physical health or only doing yeah. this or that. I've, what I've learned over the years is that it's absolutely impossible for me to be either or in anything. Okay. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> even in politics or even in my relationships. And, you know, just, uh, you know, in my, my, my whole makeup is very much about sort of both and. So I am both working in physical and mental health. And that then in how I see that and how I see the interplay between the way I've created the social enterprise and the way my identity shows up is my that my non-binary identity is that I'm both male and female. I think what I'm getting from the conversation is all the change is never greeted in adversity. It's greeted as, yes, another opportunity has just arrived. Now, what shall I do? Absolutely. And that's not, it's not always easy. I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds a bit romantic, of course, when we, when we talk about it, and it should, why not look at the best side of it? But, yeah. uh, you know, but it is, it's a way, it's a way of thinking. And if, if we go back to this, the topic that I have been focusing on, which is place-based learning and what I teach, which is learning from landscape, that's really it. It's not about going out with a predecided idea necessarily of what you're going to learn but it's being attentive to what you can learn from that space. Mm. And it, it, it comes with the drudgery of it. It comes with um, not always knowing uh, you're definitely going to have work <laughs> going. And yeah. it's uh, taking the time to be attentive uh, to what you can learn from the people and place around you. And that, I feel, is uh, valid in any context, whether it is setting up a new business or an extension to a business like in my case or um, from a research and ecology point of view, learning about uh, a new ocean system or language architecture. It's the case with pretty much any field. It's not limited to the sciences or limited to marine biology in this case. I, I think mm. it's it's a way of learning that that interests me 
Uh, and because even when you're saying that business has and even business planning has become much more focused on it being much more agile so that you can uh, see what's working as you go and adjust as time progresses. And I think that's a definite parallel here. It is undoubtedly it's to, to be adaptable and to build your plan or your model for resilience. Um, and I think all of us have really been tested in the last few years with that. Mm. But also in, in case in the case where uh, an idea or a business may not be typically what you could nest under one specific sector or mm. a predefined kind of business model. Um, and I, I see that more as curating. So you're constantly curating your own interests, your strengths and what is viable what interests others and to and to see that as um as a process of curation so you're you're moving things around constantly you're looking at what what tells that story best uh what enables you to share that story best what is of course uh both financially and uh uh ecologically sustainable in that in in the new space you might be working in so mm-hmm. it it is it is a mix of of that and then of course the the ability to practice it and to put that into practice regardless of how difficult it is because in 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 the case of work like this very often people assume that you're doing what you love or you're, you're diving or you're writing and mm. it's, it's like you're on a holiday surely mm. <laughs> you're off to the maldives so it must be a holiday mm. but the, it comes with and, and anyone who is working towards setting up a business will understand that it comes with all the the, the difficulties that are part of that, whether it's uh, logistic, logistics, financial, human capital, and otherwise, um, but that shouldn't matter because if you're if you're going to put it into practice anyway, uh, you have to stick with it every day, even even when mm. e- even when it doesn't seem it might uh, might work, or you haven't yet found the the right plugs in in a new environment. So I would love you to share with people because in and of itself, if we just have this conversation about what you've written, it will help everybody. Okay. Well, thank you. First of all, I love it when people say they like what I've written. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Powerful. Thank you. Um, And and it's very short. Um, yes, and that was better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was deliberate. So this is the thing that I've worked. So I've helped uh, over the last oh, nearly 20 years now. I've helped uh, hundreds of people get their book written, get their book published. I've got clients who've been published with the main big four publishers. I've got clients who've been published with all different publishers, lots of clients who've self-published or chosen sort of hybrid publishing. So I've been in books for a long time and I've seen a lot of books. And I kept kind of like, um, there was a stress for me. It was a stress for me. It was like the, the all the people that were writing the books, they really had a powerful, powerful messages to share, really great ideas, new ways of doing things. And then they'd accidentally write books that weren't going to get read. I was like, if we can just do this or if we can maybe change this. And for a while, I couldn't work out how, how to get the books read. I really couldn't work it out. It's like, um, you know, when you, you just end up creating more and more and more because that's what everybody else is doing. And you just kind of like keep, you just, everybody's kind of like 
cookie cuttering the same thing and it was driving me a bit insane and then I realized what it was was that um if we carry on doing that old way of books when the world has completely changed and there is so much information uh, we're not going to get read we're just going to we're just making more noise and our signal won't get heard so I kind of brought it back and was like okay well where I was starting to think, so where, where uh, is there a lot of signal and noise and where is all this noise coming from? <laughs> I found TikTok, st TikTok statistic. That's a really hard phrase to say. I'm not going to try and say that again. <laughs> Which was that uh, the average time somebody spends on TikTok, okay, was 52 yeah. minutes really? to watch one minute videos. Okay, on average, a video on TikTok is one minute and people spend 52 minutes on average. And that means they're watching 52 videos. And that means there are super users who are watching 200 videos yes. a day. And like, and I was like, okay, so it's not, we're not, not reading books because we don't have attention as you can watch 52 one minute videos. That's quite a good attention um, thing. It's because we're not writing the right books with the right people where they are right now. So we're like saying, hey, this is my book. Uh, I don't care where you are, reader. I don't care what you need, reader. This is my book. This is how we've always written books. Take it or leave it. And that was, so I switched it around and said, okay, we have to work out what the reader needs right now, where they are now, and what they need immediately rather than just dump an information load on them when they could probably go and watch 10 TikTok videos and get that same inf information. Maybe not. Some of the TikTok videos I've seen are bizarre, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, but this is a powerful insight because it's teaching us that we need to get to the point faster. Yep. Uh, we need to keep it coming so that we keep their interest. And yep. it has to be valuable and about them. It's not us uh, just serving our own egos. Yes. Yeah, and that was the biggest problem I was finding. And there's no fault of, uh, of any of the writers. It's not their fault at all. It's where, the, the, see, I love modeling things. I love, you know, I'm an engineer. We model things. We don't start from scratch. We start from something that is, is, exists. And that's what writers have been doing. And all along, we've been modeling on what's already there. Um, but things have changed so much that if we just carry on modeling on that and, and just iterating books, and so that there are 50,000 words and, you know, we start with the world is changing faster than ever, uh, Vucca, and oh my gosh, if I read that one more time, I was going to go blind. I was like, you know, <laughs> so it's like, okay, so what do we have to do? What do we have to do? We have to start where the reader is and we have to start with one reader, not not this avatar lark. I, re I really dislike for writing avatars. I hate writing to avatars. I think it's crazy. I hate talking to real? avatars. It's not real. They're imaginary people with their imaginary problems and their imaginary money and their imaginary kids. Just stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. Uh, talk to one real person. Because if you can, if you write your book, this is my like thing about this, is if you write a book for one real person and only one real person reads it, that is a hundred times better than writing an avatar-led book that nobody reads. Do you think we're more caring now than, especially with COVID? Do you think we're more caring? Do you think organisations are more caring? 
Oh, you know what? I really think even though this has been such a challenging time for all of us, I have experienced and I have witnessed with the leaders that I work with a real sense of we have to look after our people and not just are they getting the job done. Like when this first happened, of course, there was initial, oh, my goodness, everybody's working from home. Can we trust that? That shifted. And even more so now I'm noticing is how do I as a leader make sure my people are okay? These are the conversations I'm now having. How do I make sure that with the turmoil of trying to manage, you know, working from home, putting a child in front of a screen at 10 o'clock, maybe looking after an elderly relative, um, trying to juggle. People are working hard and long, by the way. It's not that they're yeah. working short, they're, hurt, they're working hard and long. I am finding that leaders are coming from a place of, like I'll ask them, why does this matter to you when we have these conversations? And they will say to me directly, it matters, Marianne, because I care about these people. There's a caring. Um, they want, they care more about their mental health. They're having those conversations now and they wouldn't have had those conversations before. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's because I like this that you started with. I mean, we start from fear, don't we? With can we trust that they're doing the work? Yeah. So we start with fear. And then, I don't know, did the world get so fearful that we have swung a little the other way to realise that the humanity of it all, the fact that you have to care, that, you know, if you don't care, you won't have people to help you grow an organisation. Or am I being too simplistic? I mean, how do we move from this old industrial era of how you manage staff and how you manage teams to actually realising that true, the true meaning of, this has always been of interest to me, the true meaning of the word human resources, Mm -hmm. HR. I mean, such a beautiful (laughs) phrase, human resources, that actually embraces and celebrates humanity. And it is gone. That phrase is so awful now. Yeah, I think it's the resource part of the human that um, has, I, I struggle with it myself. I worked, by the way, at human resources for many years. And yeah. I, it's the, um, it's that word resources, it kind of takes some of the human out of the phrase, you know? Yeah, because um, it's an asset. Yeah, it is an asset. But to your question, you know, have we moved, have we shifted from fear to care, to human-centered leadership. I think that shift has been happening, but I think there has been a sense in this pandemic that we're all in this together. Yeah. I'm experiencing what you, you're you experiencing. To some extent, it's been this leveler. Yeah. You know, like I'm trying to manage, you know, the child who's not at school. You're trying to do the same thing. You know, yes. I know what it's like to struggle day to day while, you know, it, it's, it's like before we could... Um, you know, we could put things in the box. This box is my work box. This box is my home box. This box is my self-care box. Now I'm working with people where they'll say, you know, at lunchtime, or for example, when we're having a meeting together, why don't we go for a walk? I'll walk where I am and you walk where you are. And that way, we're not just talking about the things that have to be done and the tasks that need to be achieved, but we're, we're walking. We're getting some fresh air. Tell us about this idea of the story bank, because I love it. (laughs) I love the story bank. So um, the story bank is essential to people who want to evolve um, a storied approach 
to their communications. And it doesn't matter whether you are a business owner and you're communicating B to C, whether you're B to B, whether you're a leader trying to communicate with teams, um, a, a community leader um, in the home. You know, this is something that we can do and we ought to do over and over and over again. And um, before I forget, there would be someone that I would really point to who's a guy called Matthew Dyke, D-Y-C-K, and he has a, a TED, TEDx talk called Homework for Life. And and this this is um, like lots of people who work in story talk about story libraries, but he um, he's special. So I would recommend people to, to look at his work. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So really a story library is about, because you see stories, we tell stories all the time and we communicate through story naturally as human beings, right? Um, but in order to become storied in our communications, we need to um, make time and we need to use a strategy around that. And we need to understand what storytelling is and what it's not. And actually there's an awful lot to it. <laughs> um, it's very simple and there's, and it's also, there's a complexity to it. There's, because, because, Storytelling is organic. It's about humans, the audience. There's so many different variables. With the story bank, what we do is we 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 create a system of gathering stories that are relevant to our audiences. Um, and you know, the process that I work with through when I'm working with clients is that there'll probably be about a six or seven step process that I bring them through you know and so what I always say to them is is we cast our minds back in order to map our pathways forward you know and so what I'll ask them to do is to kind of cast their minds back throughout their life and consider key people or places or moments or experiences that jump out at them you know, and all we're doing right now at this stage is we're going back and we're looking, we're exploring, we're probing. It's like we're, you know, imagine like an archaeologist who's doing a dig and they're brushing away with a little brush at the sands, brushing through the sands of time, trying to figure out the people, the places, the experiences, the moments, the teachers that shaped us. Um, and we just start to gather that and write it down. And, you know, it might be, you know, Mrs. Robinson, 1992, um, made me feel proud, uh, basketball. You know, it can be bullet points or it could be granny taught me how to ride my bicycle. Um, I never, for, you know, rem I remember her support, you know, or it could be um, about the teacher that made you feel um embarrassed or ashamed or uh, that moment where you realise that the boy didn't like you or um, the, the, the moment where you realised that you had to leave the relationship. Like these moments, because our life is made up of moments. You know, the Greeks had two ways of measuring time. There was the god of time who was Kronos, and that was chronological time. Hours days, weeks, minutes, seconds. And we need that rational, linear, chronological time in order to make sense of things, to have order and structure. But the Greeks were so damn clever. They had another god who was called Kairos. And he was the god who measured time in moments. And it is the moments in our life that we remember. And it is the moments throughout our life that we can draw stories from. It's the moment I'm on the train station 
and I miss the connecting flight. And that means that I end up staying and I meet the person who is about to change my life. It's the moment where I realize that I've made a mistake with my son and I can't change it. And I realize that I've affected him in some way. These are moments. And you see all of these moments add up to a a universal human experience. That is our life, right? But you see, the thing is, everybody else is experiencing those moments too, (laughs) right? And so if we can start to think about that and think about these universal human experiences, the moments in our life where we've experienced love and loss and and pride and success and disappointment and shame and bewilderment and confusion, and we start to tell stories based around those human emotions, even if somebody hasn't had the same experience as us, they'll connect with the emotion. if it was possible for you to share this great story, you went to visit the um, oh, my, refuge my two that girls. you had. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love yeah. this story because it tells me more about all of the work that you do because you do a lot of work and you've called it, it's not a charity, it's a social initiative and you've called it Pass It On. But I love this story. Please share it. Okay, well, I'll just take you up to that briefly. So uh, I was at home sick. 22 years ago and I was watching the Oprah Winfrey show and I saw all these children collecting stuff and I thought oh what are they doing and they were collecting items and then giving them where they were needed and I thought I absolutely love that concept because I've done a lot of fundraising over the years I was never really 100% happy with where the money was going and don't get me wrong I'm not saying you should not give to charities or whatever but you do need to have the responsibility to know where your money's going if you do that. So anyway, there was no middleman here. It was like, I'm going to take blankets and I'm going to give them where the blankets are needed and I go to wherever. So I did my first one of that. Um, we actually sending stuff over to the Kosovo War. And I thought, Ash, I'm going to ask yeah. a few friends for some coats and blankets. No, we filled 10 potato sheds with the stuff and we had wow. to get the army to come out with that packet. So, but that was I my first it. sort of wow of, okay, if you ask people for items, they're happier to do that because they know, A, they're probably finished with them themselves or even if they're going out to buy them, they have to think about where they're going. So anyway, did the hampers over the years, was involved with some of the homeless runs, would do the little care packs and all that. And it sort of grew, it had a life of its own. But after my situation, um, this particular women's hostel was very kind to me in my conversations with them and you know, they made sure I moved to a safe place and everything was okay. And I wanted to give back to them. So I decided to write the best thing I could give the women would be a package, a care package on Christmas Eve, where they get new pajamas, a new towel, new new toiletries for themselves, new slippers, just something lovely to get into mm. on Christmas Eve. And because I knew Christmas is a really hard time if you're in situations like that yeah so anyway um I was going down for a meeting I'd been doing it for about three years at the stage and I went down for a meeting into one of the refuge places and the staff were just lovely and this one particular woman is lovely and we were due to have a meeting but she got called out and didn't call me so I ended up yeah. down there waiting on her so in the hall there was these two little ones and they were sisters one was five and the other six cutest things you've ever seen in your life big woolly red hats on them that didn't really quite fit. They were coming down over their eyes yeah. and whatever and just cute out. So yeah. um, they were talking on the floor 
And they were like, Mrs, don't tell anyone you've seen us chalking on the floor. And the story was basically that they had grown up in the flats where they lived and that this was normal. And the mother had come out with a bucket of water at night time and clear off the chalked floor and it was all good. But they were in a building chalk. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, I'm saying nothing to no one, don't you worry. But I said, oh, your red hats are lovely. Are you looking forward to Santi coming? And the little one said, oh, Santi is a B. And it was a very long word. And <laughs> I said, oh, it's a big word for a little person. I said, he must have really upset you. And she said, he's never come to me. Like, he never knows where we are. He doesn't. And I was like, you know, in your head, you're going, that couldn't be right. Yeah. Or whatever. She's just this in her head or whatever, you know. And yeah. the the other sister was like, we don't like, we don't like Santi. We don't like, <laughs> she was giving it the full, oh, that's my sister, 100%. So anyway, yeah, I had yeah. a meeting the next day with the care worker and said like, what's the story? And she said, no. They just don't. There just isn't always anything left. They have their, we give them their accommodation, but they buy their own food and they pay their own bills and, you know, they're on social welfare and they can't go out to work. They can't be seen for a period of time. And, you know, they're trying to, to oh, it's just shocking. It's just shocking to me that yeah. a child would not have Santa Claus. I couldn't hack it. So I said, right, send me the list. So she was meant to send me the list for one hostel, but she sent them for three. Mm. But there was two yeah. attached that shouldn't have been. And there were 79 children. So I'm walking through the village and standing and thinking, oh, sweet Jesus, how am I going to get 79 toys? Like, I just something like four <laughs> days to go. And I met yeah. the manager, Antoinette, and Tesco and Sandy met a gorgeous woman. And she said, what's wrong with you, Helen? <laughs> I said, I need 79 Santy toys. And she said, OK. She said, well, I have 79 staff or more. So she said, why don't we just get them all to buy a Santy toy? And she took it on and she took it on Fantastic. for the next two or three years. And wow, just amazing. Yeah, just amazing. And that changed those children's lives. Well, they had something on Christmas morning and I had the best Christmas of my life. Because I knew, I knew that morning that they were okay. Yeah. I knew you were going to make me do this. I <laughs> know. <laughs> but I wanted you to tell, well, I wanted you to tell yeah. that story. I know. Well, I mean, I told the story <laughs> to Kevin as well and he couldn't believe it. Uh, but I wanted you to share the story because I really love this idea that one person can, can make a difference. And you do it all the time. And I really wanted people to know that, that well, one, that you. you do it and two, that it can be done. But I, yeah, and that's the message I want to give to people, really, just get up and do something. Just don't look at the telly and think that's shocking or don't look at your local situation thinking, shocking. get up and do, what can you do? Ask yourself, what can I do? You know, s small little things, the, the tragedy in Donegal, tiny coffee shop there giving everybody free sandwiches and free soup and all. I said to everybody I know, look, just get a fiver in a card and send it up to them. Just give them some cash so they can buy the food and then give it to the people who need it. And a fiver to people, what's that, a cup of coffee at this stage, you know? Um, I'm not saying everybody has that either, but for most people, a fiver is okay. But collectively, a fiver from 100 people is 500 people.
I hope you enjoyed that episode. Reach out and let me know what your favourite episodes have been so far. Or if there's anyone you'd love to recommend that I speak with on the show, do reach out and tell me why too. And if you'd like to support the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. It truly does help people find the podcast. And we'll be back next week as usual. And until then, take care.